Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we give you an Inside the Rope VIP access to some of the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, I'm speaking with Tim Carlton, the founder and portfolio manager for OzCap Asset Management. For a number of years now, Tim and his team at OzCap have provided investment management services for a number of my clients, particularly in the Australian equity space, managing that money with an absolute return focus. Over that time, they've performed exceptionally well, uh, achieving an annualised return more than 20% per annum. I think you will find Tim to be incredibly articulate, well thought out and very logical and, and, and just clever in his views. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please don't hesitate to send those through to me. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can get me on email, which is david.clark, that's C-L-A-R-K, at codacapital.com. Look forward to hearing from you, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Morning, Tim. Welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks. Great to be here. If we could start off, if you could give us a bit of a background to yourself um, and really how you came into investing, if you could, please. Yeah, sure. I guess I've been investing for a long time. I started in uh, my university days, probably uh, too much time spent uh, away from the classes and focusing on stocks and sport. Uh, And that was my first foray into investing into markets. Uh, I did a commerce and law degree. At the end of that, I went straight into Macquarie Bank. Uh, and I originally started actually on the investment banking side and then after a little while I ended up getting involved in principal transactions and enjoyed the investing side far more than I did the advisory side. Uh, After a while there uh, I got a call from someone at Goldman Sachs, Uh, they were looking for someone in their proprietary team uh, so to invest the firm's balance sheet Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I went across to Goldman's in 2007, started 2007 and uh, after a year Matt Parker, my current business partner uh, joined and we spent four years sitting next to each other managing separate um, long short Australian equities portfolios uh, using proprietary capital. So this was investing Goldman's own money in an Australian equities portfolio, managing a long short portfolio in the same way that we do t- today. Uh, a few things changed, uh, Goldman's took full ownership of the domestic business, the Volcker all came into effect and Matt and I decided it was a good opportunity to go and set up OzCap. So we did that in 2012. It took us probably nine or 10 months to set it up properly. Uh, and then we kicked off the fund in December of that year. So the fund's now been running for a little over five years. We're coming up to five years in one month uh, at the end of December. And we've been delighted with how things have been going. Uh, we run a pretty simple strategy at long shorts, about as complicated as we think you need to make investing in an equities market. Uh, and we run a value-based strategy. So we like to find business. Let's just back up a little bit. Sure. I'm really interested because I've had some comments around this to me when I was first introduced to some other people in terms of introducing and saying, look, well, you know, when, you, when you're managing Goldman's money, yes. um, the environment's quite different. If you're in a retail managed fund, um, you know, you, the market was down 20, I was down 20. In fact, I've heard managers say, you know, we did really well last year. You know, we, we lost 20, the market was down 30. We, we, we were up. 10 you know is what they've said um t- tell me the environment there because i've had to explain to me that's the type yeah. of environment that is if, you know you're, you're losing money over a year or otherwise you may come back to your desk and there's a brown box on the table 
Yeah, I mean, it's made pretty clear to you up front that they have no tolerance for losing capital. Um, so uh, the one thing that is drilled into you relentlessly at all of the investment banks, but Goldman's is probably um, the most focused on this, is do not lose money. Uh, and so you either manage your risk appropriately or it will be managed for you. So, uh, you know, when, when I started at Goldman's, it was made um, very clear to me that uh, if you're managing a portfolio where you have sole responsibility, if you have a drawdown and sit and, and reach a certain level, uh, they will send you on a holiday. And if you come back and hit a second drawdown level, you'll be sent on a permanent holiday. It tends to sharpen your focus to make sure that you focus on absolute return rather than relative return. Because Goldman's doesn't really care what the index is doing. They care about whether or not you're making money. And I think... Surprisingly like clients. Yeah, like clients. Um, (laughs) uh, So uh, Matt and I have uh, little care for what an index does in a given day, month or year. We focus on every opportunity from an absolute perspective. And uh, that is enormously different, I think, to the majority of fund managers. Uh, we would argue that if you focus on risk first and return second, you'll achieve better long-term outcomes. And now that you're running your business, you've opened the fund, doing it on your own, has your attitude changed or behaviour changed much in terms of how you're managing money? Not at all. I mean, I think uh, Matt and I are two of the largest investors in the fund. We really treat the fund as though it's our own capital. We take managing the capital very seriously and we don't care at all for relative returns. The relative return debate has a lot of problems with it. You start to focus on what makes up the index rather than whether you're investing in sensible opportunities and whether the return or prospective return is attractive for the risk that you're taking. And in some ways you almost start worrying about what's not in the portfolio because it might lead to underperformance against an index rather than what is in the portfolio. So we have no index consideration at all. We focus on identifying opportunities that we are we think are compelling from a return perspective but have relatively low levels of risk or low levels of downside or low levels of a low number of ways that we can be wrong about um, our investment and uh, if they um, deliver us a 10 to 15 percent total return then we think um, that that's a terrific opportunity. Now a lot of people when they hear the term long short think about a hedge fund and you, and you may well get caught by ASIC's definition sure. given your absolute return and performance for the etc etc sure. in that and a lot of people think of a highly aggressive high volume of trading um, you know a turn, certain type of hedge fund that they're thinking now my understanding and in discussions with yourself and your team yeah. that you have a very different position in that you have you know almost a very dull and boring uh, long only book where you're you know um, I think most of our listeners and clients understand that long only investments about buying an asset for future cash flows both in income and capital growth yes um, so so you have a dull and boring book and then you have a short book can uh, a short book where you're looking to make money or profit out of positions where companies go down can you talk a little bit about that and the difference to those hedge funds Yeah, so I guess we really consider ourselves to be a value manager first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And our long book looks very much like a traditional value manager um, long portfolio. So these are companies with good cash flows where you think you can buy them at an intrinsic value lower than what the market's rating, waiting for them to rewrite. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, all of the businesses that we own have to generate significant amounts of cash after all business expenditures. 
And if they do that, then they're a candidate for a company that we'll look at. But we like the companies to also have a strong historical return on capital, have a sensible balance sheet. We prefer simple businesses. We prefer businesses where we're often a customer of uh, the business itself. And if we find businesses like that that are trading at a big discount to what we think they're worth, then we'll invest in them. So it's very, very similar to how uh, the majority of true value managers operate. But then we complement this with a short portfolio. And yes, the short portfolio makes us technically a hedge fund, but we certainly don't think of ourselves as a hedge fund because we don't do anything other than Australian equities. So we don't, we're not invested in foreign stocks or different indices or commodities or currencies or derivatives. We've got no derivatives in the portfolio, uh, nor have we had any derivatives in the portfolio. Uh, on the short side, we find a basket of companies that we think are low quality companies. So they have the opposite characteristics to our long positions. So they've got low cash generation, often negative cash generation, uh, frequently stretched balance sheets, no real return in, on, on invested capital uh, as a track record that you could point to. Uh, they have questionable business models, questionable accounting practices, promotional management. They have all of the characteristics that we don't like to see um, in a business. And so uh, the, the short positions tend to provide quite a nice hedge to our long portfolio in those times when you get periods of market volatility. And so to hedge or to protect um, the portfolio when the market is suffering a serious decline adds a lot of value both um, from an investor perspective but also from a manager perspective. And how many of those short positions would you typically have at any one time? It's not a huge number. It's, it's typically between 10 and 15 short positions and, and that's about half the number of long positions that we'd ordinarily have. Okay. And can you explain for our listeners how you enter into a position that profits from that? Yeah, so shorting is not particularly well understood, but it's been around for a long time. So shorting has existed for as long as markets have existed. Uh, shorting is uh, the ability to borrow stock from uh, a, an existing shareholder. Uh, you pay a fee for that privilege. So we'll typically pay a fee to the person that we're borrowing or the institution that we're borrowing the stock from. Uh, from. And then we will sell their stock and agree to buy it back at a later point in time. So if we sell it at $10 and we buy it back at $5, then we've obviously made a $5 profit ignoring transaction costs. Uh, So we're trying to profit from declines in share prices. Uh, That's obviously the opposite to what people are typically trying to do when they're investing. And, And the question that often gets asked is why do the institutions lend out their stock? And the answer is they get a fee. And if they're going to hold uh, that that stock for a long period of time, and an index product is a classic example of a fund that's going to hold all of the stocks within the index for a period of time, and they can generate an additional return from lending some of their securities to people at short sell, then it adds to to their return profile. Um, So there are reasons that long institutions lend out their stock. Um, it provides nice opportunities for long short funds to so this part of their portfolio. So this trend that you're seeing in a huge uplift from funds going into ETFs and index tracking ones has, has helped you to a degree? It's hard to say. We've never had a particular problem in borrowing stock. Mm-hmm. So there's always been a large pool of stock available for, uh, for uh, lending purposes. Uh, and uh, I suspect that that does continue because of the shift towards... Uh, passive products because there are going to be more and more funds out there that are happy to earn an extra half to one percent from lending their stock to people that want to borrow it. Can you talk a little bit about the type of companies you're shorting at the moment? Yeah, shorting in the the current environment is actually a very difficult exercise and um, 
we analyse every position at a stock level rather than having a broad macro view. Mm -hmm. But given we're finding very few immediate opportunities on the short side, uh, we often step back and say, well, does it make sense that we're not finding a huge number of opportunities? And we think about the current environment, people are very conservatively positioned. Uh, they have a lot of cash. Everyone's very fearful of when the next crash will occur. Everyone's very fearful about what happens when interest rates rise. Uh, it's probably not surprising that, broadly speaking, there is a lot of sensible behaviour in the market and there aren't that many stocks or sectors uh, where the valuation is getting out of whack with its intrinsic value. Um, we see pockets of opportunity. There are probably 30 to 40 companies that we're monitoring at the moment that at some point we think will develop into good shorting opportunities. And they're, the, they're in the sectors where everyone's getting very excited um, about a macro theme and not paying too much attention to company fundamentals. So I think you know the technology space, the Bitcoin space, the lithium space, I think we'll get a number of opportunities that will be quite attractive um, over the coming couple of years. But you have to be patient to wait for the right time to initiate short positions. You touched on it uh, there, and I think it's one that we've just seen a, a lot of noise about in the last couple of weeks. And two things stand out to me is, uh, um, you know, clients ringing up asking to form a syndicate to short Bitcoin. Another posting on LinkedIn I saw this week where, you know, those signs on the on the street buttons, on the, the, the lines that says, you know, tear off a thing to learn more about Bitcoin. Sure. Um, just inviting me, tell me your thoughts on Bitcoin. Well, I think the most misleading aspect of Bitcoin is that it's called a cryptocurrency. It's, it's or that it's called a currency. It's not a currency. A currency get its, gets its legitimacy from uh, the fact that it's created by a government. So fiat currencies get their legitimacy from um, the fact that a government sponsors that and a government has the ability to tax its residents. So it has the ability to create a fiat currency. Uh, most people are enamoured by the fact that there are only a certain amount of coins that can be created for each cryptocurrency. And so as a result, they assume that there's some form of scarcity associated with each of the various cryptocurrencies. And that's true. But because they have no source of legitimacy, uh, I would uh, suspect that the way this ends is you just get a multiplication in the number of cryptocurrencies. So yes, Bitcoin was the first one and now we've got something like 1200 other cryptocurrencies. Yes. You'll see more and more of these created until eventually demand across the board is satisfied and at that point demand outweighs supply and, and it ends very badly for the people that are holding uh, the cryptocurrency. So uh, it is a typical um, speculative mania. It's not that dissimilar to uh, paying excessive prices for tulips as happened mm -hmm. um, a few centuries ago. It's not that different to paying um, massive valuations for dot-com stocks just because they're offering um, the potential to get involved in, in something off. through uh, the online market. This is another market mania and you want to make sure that you don't end up on the wrong side of it because well, it will end at some point. I think when the SEC issues a warning about Paris Hilton and other socialites uh, endorsing new issuances, it's a, a bit of a flag to all. Um, moving along, one of the things I've heard you talk about that you know struck me as, as very powerful and driving a lot of your results is the patience. Yes. I'd like to talk a little bit about that and, and quite often you're happy, happy to hold cash if you can't see anything. And in particular, as an example, maybe I think you've spoken about Brexit in the past and how you're able to take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think 
you have to be aware of where you have an edge. And we do a lot of work and we investigate a lot of the companies in the market very thoroughly, um, continuously over long periods of time. So we've often talked about the 80 to 90 companies that we'd love to own that we think are great businesses within the stock market, Australian stock market. Uh, but it's very rare that they trade down to prices that we find attractive. So if we were going to classify or talk about our edge, it would be the patience to wait for the right opportunities. And that might mean sitting with more cash than most investors would be happy to sit with for long periods of time. And you talked about Brexit. We'd spent the first six months of 2016 sitting with between 40 and 50% cash in the portfolio, which for an active manager is an awful lot. Uh, we felt absolutely no compulsion to do anything. We'd got to that position because a lot of the stocks that we'd previously owned for a number of years had become very, very expensive. And as they became very expensive, we simply couldn't justify the use of our capital in companies that were now trading well above our estimate of fair value. So we sold them down. And we're not under any illusion that the market suddenly has an obligation to throw us up new opportunities for sensible deployment of capital. So we will sit there as we would our own capital, as we do our own capital, um, and wait for uh, the right opportunities to invest. And we weren't forecasting Brexit at the time. I was actually holidaying overseas. Uh, but it came along uh, in June, late June of 2016, and because we had a lot of cash, we were able to deploy more capital in that two to three week period following the Brexit than any period since we've started the fund. Uh, and it gave us a wonderful opportunity to buy into four companies that we knew very well, uh, three of whom we hadn't been invested in previously, at prices that we found exceedingly attractive. So if I was going to classify some important um, advantages that we have, one is the patience to wait for the opportunity. And the second is uh, time horizon arbitrage. We're happy to take a medium term view on what a company should do over the next three to five years and not necessarily worry about what it's doing over the next three to six months. And that often affords us great opportunities to get involved in very good companies when they're facing a short term hiccup or a short term issue. And for the listeners, what type of returns has that translated into? Well, we don't like talking about our returns too much, to be honest. The fund's done very well in the five years that we've been running, so it's annualised a little under 25% per annum net to our investors. Uh, but it's misleading to focus on that number because Matt and I get most excited by, by what we consider to be lower than market risk, 10 to 15% type opportunities. Our view has always been if we can find enough sensible 10 to 15% type opportunities mm-hmm. on an annualised basis... Uh, the fund and our investors should do sufficiently well over time. So if the fund annualised that sort of number on a through-the-cycle basis, we'd be delighted. So we don't want people to get carried away. Sometimes, uh, yes, we like to buy stocks cheap. Yes, we like to have a base case 10 to 15% return. Yes, we like our stocks to have some sort of optionality on the upside. Uh, But if the optionality doesn't play out, we're still more than happy with that base case return. We think it's an exceptional return in the context of the environment that we're in from a growth, interest rate, inflation perspective. And to sit on the cash flow and wait for that to come through. Absolutely. There's nothing better than owning great businesses for a long time. For a long and, time. And, and of course, that's resonated with investors. It's been popular. Your funds under management have grown significantly. You've issued a PDS. Where do you think your capacity is? We've said from very early on that capacity, we think capacity is around $2 billion. We will cap the fund a lot earlier than a lot of other people in the space that we operate. So our focus is mid and large cap companies. Why? They have the characteristics that we like. We actually want to see a track record from businesses that we invest in. 
So it's very unusual for us to participate in IPOs. Uh, we want to see a five to ten year track record for the company operating as a listed company so that we can make some sensible conclusions around what their metrics look like on a through the cycle basis. Uh, and that tends to mean that if you um, focus uh, at the mid and large cap end, you see a lot of opportunities uh, in that space that meet those requirements. They, they also generate the capital, they have a sensible return on invested capital. Uh, so they have the characteristics that we're looking for. Uh, so the, the average market cap of uh, stocks that we've invested in from inception to now has been a little over $7 billion. Uh, That should give your listeners some idea of the sorts of stocks that we're getting involved in. We do look at the occasional small cap and invest in the occasional small cap. We do have the occasional position at the very large end. So we own Macquarie Group at the moment. We pitched that at the recent Sion um, conference uh, as a long idea. Uh, but the majority of the positions are in that mid and large cap space, not at the mega cap space where everyone's heavily concentrated and not at the micro and small cap space where you've got to be very, very careful about the risks involved in investing at that end. And given your comfortable talk about Macquarie and you're on the public record on that, yes. just talk us through your investment thesis as a bit of colour for our listeners. Yeah, sure. I think most people still think of Macquarie Bank or Macquarie Group as a bank providing banking services. And so they, they attach a multiple to Macquarie Group that's similar to either the domestic banks or the investment banks. But actually, the, the largest source of earnings for Macquarie these days comes from its asset management business. And we would argue that it's probably the best asset management business in the world. Uh, at its core, they've got an infrastructure asset management business that has over $150 billion worth of assets in it. These are monopoly infrastructure assets. And Macquarie is generating base and performance fees every year off what are recurring revenue streams. Right? Uh, so, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's globally a top 50 uh, asset manager uh, they have a very, very strong return on capital on the asset management business. It now accounts for 45% of group earnings. I expect that that will continue to go up over time. Uh, and if we if we valued that part of the business at a multiple in line with its peers, keeping in mind that we think it's it's a better funds management business than the peer multiple, the peer group, sorry, um, we get a valuation in excess of 18 billion, which means the rest of Macquarie is valued at around eight or nine times current earnings. So we think it's attractively priced. We think it's a great business. If you think about all the characteristics we look for, has great cash generation, very good return on capital, um, a sensibly geared balance sheet with plenty of headroom. In fact, uh, that's the reason that they announced the capital initiatives recently. Uh, it ticks a lot of boxes for the sorts of businesses we like to invest in. If we could just change the pace a little bit and talk a bit more about the general in, in investment environment and outlook and a bit sure. more macro. Um, I remember going back maybe April 16, May 16, attending and bringing clients along to hear, to, hear you speak. And, and a lot of what you're talking about there was going on in China and you had some photos, you'd been up there of empty places. And, and there was a thesis that you were talking about there about um, you know being concerned about China and the knock-on effects that has to the Australian economy, the Australian investment environment, property prices, our resources, um, flow on property, banking, etc. Yes. Um, what is your view of China now? Do you still hold that view that you had there, which, which was quite bearish? Yeah. Our view is that there are two big risks for the domestic economy. Uh, one is the amount of leverage at the household level, and the second is uh, China's overconsumption uh, of resources. And we still hold that view. Interestingly, um, you mentioned the time frame being mid-2016. At that point in time, we didn't have... Uh, any short exposure uh, to the resource space. 
Um, we had for quite a number of years leading up to that point. Uh, but in the, at the start of 2016, China launched what is the world's largest ever stimulus package. Uh, they put between 800 and 900 billion US into their economy in January alone of that year. And when we saw that stimulus package, we knew that it'd have a flow on impact um, for commodity demand because it was going to lead to uh, uh, growth in the form of construction activity, which, which obviously precedes uh, increased commodity demand. So we haven't had a large exposure on the short side in the, in the resource space um, uh, from that point. We're just starting to see some of the credit metrics roll over now, so there might be uh, more opportunities going forward. But what we can say is, statistically, China are over-consuming from a commodity standpoint. And when I put up those charts, it's not difficult for anyone to see that, yes, China are consuming on a per-person basis far more than they should be consuming for their level of development. Actually, they're consuming more on a per-person basis than they should, even if they were uh, at an equivalent stage of development to the US or Australia or the rest of Europe. So from our perspective, their consumption of steel needs to fall over time and it needs to fall materially. And uh, if that happens, you're going to see a flow on impact to the domestic market because we provide them with a huge amount of the commodities that go into the production of steel. And obviously the two main ingredients there are iron ore and coal. Uh, when we see statistical anomalies in the data, we like to see that it also matches what we're uh, viewing on the ground. So I've spent quite a lot of time in China. I've visited 20 to 30 different cities. So not just the main cities, but a lot of tier two, tier three, tier four cities. And the overbuild and overdevelopment that um, I have seen, uh, quite frankly, petrifies me. Uh, and so what we're seeing in the data does also show up uh, on the ground. Uh, there are a lot of empty apartment buildings, a mind-boggling amount of empty apartment buildings, a lot of infrastructure that's not utilised at all. And so at some point, the commodity, um, the commodity picture will start to reflect the fact that there's still demand and um, needs to drop over time. And when that happens, I'm not sure, but already the, the government is talking about its next term focusing on the quality of growth. I suspect that means that they're going to move away from infrastructure and property development, and that will have negative consequences for the domestic economy because our export of iron ore and coal are very large parts of, of the Australian economy. The other concern you flagged was the leverage of um, households in Australia. Yes. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, if you could. Well, Australia now has the second highest household leverage in the world as a as a um, percentage of GDP, and if we if we do it as a percentage of GNI, gross national income, so you remove the influence of our exports, then we move to into position number one uh, ahead of Switzerland. So uh, that's concerning because uh, it's obviously accompanied the fall in interest rates over time. So as interest rates have fallen, people are focused on the amount that they can afford to repay from an interest perspective, and as a result, household leverage has tripled over the last 20 years. If we're going into an environment where interest rates are rising, and not necessarily because of factors that are associated with the domestic economy, but more associated with the fact that we've got a global pickup in economic growth that will be the main driver of global interest rates, then it may place a large strain on domestic balance sheets, household balance sheets. So uh, we are very concerned about the flow and impact of that into the economy. And uh, the main reason for concern is it's not necessarily something that the RBA can control because uh, most of the 
banking institutions, as an example, still get a very large proportion of their funding from overseas markets. And if mm-hmm. interest rates are going up in overseas markets, then uh, their funding costs will go up also, and they will be passing that on to consumers. Uh, so it's the second major cause of concern in the current market. I don't want to sound too bearish, but um, you know they're, they're two very big threats for the domestic economy. Tim, thank you very much for your time and joining us here on Inside the Rope. Really enjoyed hearing your insights and some fantastic information that you've provided to our listeners. Thank you very much and all the best for you and your team in 2018. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.